0: Are you ready to help decide the winners of the Servi Awards, our award that recognizes the front-of-house all-stars that keep the restaurant industry going? After receiving close to 8,000 nominations from all 50 states, our industry judges have selected 40 finalists. But it's up to you to decide who wins the Servy's trophy, a pair of free snib shoes, and a $3,000 tip. Three thousand dollars visit the to meet the finalists and hear their stories from montana to florida there are some fantastic stories of folks who make us proud to work in this industry you can vote once per category every single day through september 17th this is just one of the many ways we're working to make life a little better for the restaurants we love and there's more good stuff to come vote today at the surveys.com. now here we
1: go But even partial automation, I think, has its place. And you see now some companies doing automated deep fryers and automated make lines. And plugging those into existing restaurants, again, can help alleviate some of the labor shortage that a lot of restaurants are experiencing and also bring a better price to the
0: customer. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. What if no one works in the restaurant of the future? Literally, like no employees. Sure, it might not work in fine dining, but does Chipotle really need employees? The team over at Mesli doesn't think so, and they've invested over $3 million to prove it. Mesli is a fully automated restaurant run by robots. They launched last week and have come on the show to share how it's gone and where it's going.
1: I'm Alex Polchinski. I was born in what's now Ukraine and grew up in Kansas and Massachusetts. And I grew up doing a lot of programming and also math competitions and ended up doing computer science in college, going to Google as a product manager. And then the big company life wasn't really for me. So I went to teach in Nepal for a bit and then to grad school, working on different applications of AI at Stanford. So while I was at Stanford, I started taking some startup classes thinking about the startup world more than I had in the past, although I had in the past too, and really realized that one of my biggest problems in my life that I would like to solve was the lack of availability of good quality food that I could get for a reasonable price. I was having to bulk cook a gallon and a half in my instant pot of some kind of stew every Sunday because I couldn't really afford to go out to eat all the time, but I also couldn't spend the time as a busy grad student to be cooking all the time. And so I started looking into why it was 10, 15, even $20 to go out to somewhere like Chipotle or Sweetgreen to get a decent meal, and started realizing that the economics of the restaurant industry were such that if we automated food service, we could bring better meals to people at better prices. And so that's around the time I started talking to Alex Grubala, who I'm sitting here with right now, who's a robotics expert to compliment my AI background about, hey, is this actually something we can do? And if so, what would it look like?
2: Yeah, I'm Alex Grubala. I grew up in Illinois, and then I went to University of Illinois for undergrad. I was kind of like building things, tinkering things, loved physics in high school. And so I went into mechanical engineering in college, because that means you can basically be broad and do whatever later on, which came in handy, because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. After that, I came to Stanford, and I did my PhD there in robotics, specifically soft robotics and making sensors. So like giving robots perceptions, they can feel things. And actually, a lot of that was work in the kitchen. So like, Having robots be able to pick up dirty dishes and slippery things, immersed in water, that kind of thing. While in grad school, I took an entrepreneurship class pretty early on, actually, that really put me on the fact that you can actually go start a startup. It can be a real thing. That's actually where I met Max. We worked on that project together, working on some satellite communication stuff. Later on, though, I met Alex for another entrepreneurship class, and he started telling me about this you know, dream to lower the cost of healthy and convenient food, which really speaks to me because I like to work out a lot. I also love to cook, actually, but I almost never do it because I like to cook for fun, make kind of like fancy stuff that takes a lot of time and is usually kind of expensive to put together. So for my day to day, I was always eating at Chipotle or whatever for 10 to $12, which is pretty expensive on a student stipend. So uh, yeah, Alex's vision really spoke to me and I joined to start building some of the hardware. So the two of us, uh, this is Alex
1: Polchinski again started digging into this deeper and talking to people in the robotics industry and in the restaurant industry who would take our calls. Our calls being like, hey, we're a couple of grad students. We're looking into this industry. We're wondering why it is so expensive to get this kind of food. Can you tell us some more about what you know? And over the course of those calls, we started to stitch this picture together that maybe our initial idea wasn't so crazy, because both of us had worked on sort of very early stage startup ideas before and found reasons why They weren't viable or at least they weren't viable to turn into big businesses and so we started to realize that this one actually was going somewhere and that's around the time we started talking to max
3: yeah so similar story to alex actually i grew up in massachusetts was very interested in cars and motorcycles and decided that rather than be a mechanic i wanted to kind of learn how they worked and why they worked and so went to umass amherst for mechanical engineering Loved it there and kind of got into aerospace while I was there and ended up going to grad school out here at Stanford, got my master's there in aerospace engineering. And it was there that I actually met Alex Grublo. We worked on a project that I still think was a really good idea, but didn't end up going anywhere. And, you know, I've been kicking around the space, working on a couple of different after hours projects here and there, startups of various kind that never really went anywhere. And I worked a day job at Maxar doing satellite controls. And then Alex one day just sent me a message out of the blue and said, Hey, I've got this idea I'm working on. And I was like, Oh, I've got this idea too. Let me tell you about it. My idea was terrible. We're just going to toss that in the dustbin. I talked to these guys and I think I told them like, keep talking to me and eventually I'll quit my job. I can't say yes right now. Like I can't just come out and say this on the first meeting, but there is something in that discussion in the core of the idea that really struck me as possible. I didn't, when they described the problem that they wanted to solve, I said, yeah, every piece of that, it's hard, but every piece is solvable. I think that's doable. And eventually I said, yep, let's do it. Quit my job and jumped into the startup thing. And we started working on the first prototype in the garage of the house that I was working in. And this was mid-COVID. So actually, almost two years ago, exactly, I think, was when we started like really building the first prototype.
0: Ah, uh, the story of every restaurateur, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Hanging out at Stanford and deciding to build a robot restaurant. I think it's so interesting and so compelling. What we've seen over the last couple of years within the industry is that some of the best ideas that have helped improve the industry came from outside of it. Fresh perspectives, right? New technologies. Industry practices from outside of our industry, heavily influencing everything going on within our industry. And so before we get into the actual building of the restaurant, I want to talk about the genesis of the brand. So you decide you're going to start a robotic restaurant. How did you decide on the cuisine and where it was going to be located and how you were going to position it to the general public?
1: The funny thing is we originally thought we were going to be building robots to sell or rent to restaurants. And we started talking to local chains and even national chains about working with them to build robotics for them. Through those conversations, we realized a few things. One was that it was just very slow to be trying to set up this relationship with someone, where if we were building our own food and our own brand and our own robot, we could be moving on everything quickly in-house. But if every question about the menu, if every request for a tweak, if every operational question had to bounce out of house to another company, it was just going to slow us down by a factor of two or more we also realized that we were going to be able to get to a higher level of quality and really operational efficiency if we did everything in-house ourselves. And so it was almost this gradual realization that we wanted to be the automated restaurant as opposed to just being a robotics company selling to restaurants. When that started, we started working with Eric Minnick, who's now our chef. And we started talking to him and many others about what kind of food should we be serving? We wanna be doing something high quality, fresh, healthy, Something that the robot can serve repeatedly at high quality to customers. What does that look like? And so we looked at different culinary concepts, but actually from the beginning, we were considering Mediterranean pretty heavily because it's a favorite of all three of us. And Alex is actually from a Greek background, so he grew up with the food. And Eric, the chef, is from a Mediterranean cooking background as well. So we really gravitated towards it pretty heavily because we realized it was going to check all the boxes that we were looking for.
0: And so you have the idea, you have the overall brand concept. This feels expensive to me, guys. I mean, as someone that's built out half a dozen restaurants, it's expensive to build out a restaurant filled with people. So you're adding robots, which is a whole nother level of expense and complexity to it. One, how incredibly expensive was the venture? And two, how'd you pay for it? The funny thing is, when you're talking about the location itself, it's actually, yes,
1: we're adding robots, but we're also subtracting a lot of things that it takes to build a traditional restaurant. We don't have tables and chairs. We don't have a bathroom. We don't even have really a building. It's a box full of automation equipment. And so we can build these right now at about half the price of what the average Chipotle location takes to build. And because these are a mass producible unit we can actually bring that cost way down over time, which just isn't the case when you're doing traditional construction. You're not gonna be able to bring down the cost of building a building using traditional construction techniques the same way you can something that's built in a factory. Now, that's the cost of the unit itself. That's actually part of the reason why we can sell great food at such a low price. But the company did take a few million dollars. We've spent almost $3 million to date bringing this vision to life, which it is brought to life as of yesterday. And that we raised from venture capitalists, raised from angel investors. We've been operating in the tech ecosystem of Silicon Valley, explaining to people why this vision could be really big and asking them to invest their money to help us making it a reality.
0: I'm sure it's been a really busy two years. And one of the things that helps scale new ideas like this are having the right people involved. And I think that includes the people we learn from. Did mentorship play a role? And you guys founding this and scaling it out? Oh, 100%. We've been learning from dozens, if not
1: hundreds of people along the way. Some of those we have formal relationships with, including our investors, some of whom have taught us many things, and our one advisor, uh, Charles Billies of Suvla, which is a local Mediterranean chain. We've also learned a lot from people who are just generous to us, from Stanford professors who we took classes from and went to office hours with to people we just asked for phone calls or meetings, and some of them met with us repeatedly and told us what they had learned about restaurants and robotics over the years. And so really this vision that we came up with, I mean, at first it was kind of just a thought of, hey, is this possible? And the way it turned into reality and the way that we built the skills to make it a reality relied on a lot of mentorship from the Stanford professors, from the people along the way, from our mentors in White Combinator, just a whole slew of people.
0: One of the things that I think is so foundational to the restaurant industry is this idea of modeling, that we find bits and pieces from other restaurant concepts that we like, and we internalize them, and we add them to our vision for our restaurant. Did you guys model? What other restaurant concepts did you look to for inspiration?
1: Oh, 100%. Yeah. So one that not too many people will have heard of nationally is actually uh, one of our investors' chains, Saj Mediterranean. This is Zayda Yub's chain. And we were big fans of Saj for a very long time. Mm -hmm. It was something we ate ourselves all the time. They make good quality Mediterranean bowls. And there was actually one across the street from Max's garage where we were building our first prototype out of. And we'd go to Saj for lunch pretty regularly, although we couldn't really afford to do it every day. And so that was one of our models. Chipotle was another. We're also big fans of sweet green, but again, it's just such a prohibitive price point when you're talking about being a grad student or an entrepreneur. So a lot of these fast, casual bowl style chains were big inspirations for us.
0: Now, Saj didn't see you as a potential competitor. They went so far as to actually invest in the concept. They did.
1: Yeah. And I can't really speak to Zade's exact thinking there, but he's been really helpful to us along the way. I mean, we've talked about the possibility of working together and bringing some of their items to our brand as well. But from the beginning, he's been really helpful helping us understand the industry. And I think he sees it as a win-win where he helps us succeed. And now he sees a piece of the upside as well.
0: Hospitality is generally defined through human interaction, and there's no human interaction in your concept. So I'm wondering how you would define or redefine hospitality through the lens of your restaurant brand. So I can
1: tell you the way we're thinking about how the restaurant industry is evolving, which is that there's this big distinction between a full service restaurant where people go for the experience, the hospitality, to spend time with friends and family, and the more limited service world, where you see behavior like people going on the Chipotle app on their phones, ordering something and then walking into Chipotle and picking it up from the shelves without ever interacting with someone or from the sweet green outpost stations. And so we see this growing trend where there's actually this bifurcation in the industry between the traditional restaurant experience. It's this very social community based thing and this movement more towards convenience food, which I think is coming out of people having very busy lives and not wanting to be cooking meals that are just for food. They want to have high quality food that they can eat at ideally a reasonable price and conveniently. And honestly, a lot of the time, there's just not that much human interaction involved in the need that the customers are trying to satisfy. And so we focused 100% on delivering that quality, delivering that price, delivering that convenience, and making it so people can eat really well without having to spend time or money they don't have. It's much more about the quality of the food than it is about the social interaction to the customer because maybe they'll come to Mesley for lunch because they have half an hour to get away from their desk. And then maybe they'll go out to their neighborhood mom and pop restaurant for dinner to spend some time with friends and family. And we
0: think there's a really valid use case for both of those. There's this old phrase, right? Pioneers get shot. Settlers get land. Mm -hmm. And you guys are pioneering an entirely new business model in an industry which is in the midst of this massive evolution. What hurdles have you had to overcome in order to get where you are today? There have been a number. So a few, like you said,
1: that's exactly right. Just being the first to do something is hard. So some of that is just, it's hard to make this kind of hardware happen. And I'll let Alex talk about things like supply chain delays in a second, Mm -hmm. but also it's been convincing people (laughs) this is actually doable. It's really helpful now that we've actually pulled it off and that we're actually serving people now, but Two years ago when we told people what we were trying to do most people thought we were totally crazy and at least initially that was the hardest for fundraising because we would talk to venture capitalists about what we were trying to do and most people were thinking hold on you're trying to start a hardware company which is notoriously hard to do especially profitably you're trying to start a restaurant which is especially hard to do that's also notorious your first time entrepreneur is trying to bring both of these together are you completely crazy And so raising money was really, really hard and took a lot of work. And the hardware side was also not easy. And Alex can talk about that as well, especially with COVID affecting supply chains.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, doing this in such a short period of time, I mean, we built this whole restaurant that we just rolled out in the past year without an existing supply chain has been pretty crazy. I mean, most big companies have entire teams that manage these kinds of things and have existing relationships that make sure they have quality control and can get things on time. And I mean... Yeah, shipping and fabricating stuff and having a lot of mistakes made and having to get them redone. Working with suppliers like that was just crazy on such a short timeline. I mean, even the shipping delays of like uh, during during Y Combinator, actually, where we were trying to build out our first version of our restaurant in about eight weeks, we had some supplies coming in from the Midwest and they were actually delayed by over a week due to just winter weather. The trucks can't go out on the road. And we're sitting here like, oh, man, we've got demo day coming up in like two weeks. We thought we'd have this A week before so we could integrate it in our machine and test it. And maybe now we'll have it a day or two before. So I guess we can stay up all night and test it right before uh, before we go to demo day. So yeah, I mean, it's been crazy working with the uh, hardware delays and uh, supply chain there. (laughs) Yeah. And we've been doing all of this for the last now almost
1: two years with an engineering team of four people. And again, under $3 million when other companies have tried to do similar things with probably $50 to $100 million in engineering teams of dozens of people. So we're pretty proud that we've pulled it off, actually, when others haven't. Yeah, in
2: some ways, the limitations on cash have really forced us to be very choosy about what kinds of problems we solve with our automation to make sure that we can keep them simple and really cheap. I mean, we're not going out there buying a bunch of like robot arms and things like that because those are really expensive and difficult to work with. And instead, we kind of think of it as like, how can we get something to move from point A to point B for a few thousand dollars with just a simple motor and something that we can initially 3D print and later on maybe have manufactured your machine.
0: What feedback have you gotten internally from the hospitality industry? Is this
1: well-received? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. It's like night and day when we talk to people in tech, especially software industry people, versus when we talk to people in restaurants. People in tech are starting to come around to it, I think, but the general reaction is, why are you building a hardware company? Why are you building a restaurant? You could be doing crypto or B2B software instead. But when we talk to restaurateurs, I think almost every single person we talk to, even from the very beginning, has realized that this is the future of limited service restaurants or at least a big part of the limited service restaurant industry. And so it's almost like we don't even have to convince people as soon as we tell them what we're doing. They tend to be like, oh, wow. Yeah, of course, this is happening. What feedback have you gotten
0: externally from the general public?
1: So far, people have been really positive about it, too. We've been serving people now in soft launch mode up to our grand opening yesterday for a couple of weeks. And people who haven't heard of us before, which right now is most people walking past our location, are initially confused about what we are because we look like almost a building. And then people see that there's no windows or anything. And they're wondering, what is this Mesley thing? And we have to explain to them, hey, this is a robotic restaurant that'll serve you high quality meals at a low price. And then they start interacting with it. There's the ordering software from a touch screen. There's the pickup station. And we do generally have to explain to people for the first time how to use it. But the experience tends to be pretty smooth. And I think that people are generally surprised when they taste the food because they didn't really know what to expect. And the level we're executing at isn't really what people are expecting from a robotic restaurant. It's just a better food than you think would be coming out of a robot.
0: Let's talk about your expectations versus reality. So. When we look at feedback loops, there are a few that are more instantaneous and more aggressive than being in the restaurant industry. Somebody has an hour for lunch. It took them 20 minutes to drive to your restaurant. It's going to take them 20 minutes to drive back to work. And if they can't eat and feel like they got great value in that tiny window that they are with you, they're pissed and they never come back. Nobody ever has a poor experience and then ventures back to wherever they had that poor experience, especially in our industry. So what has it been like for you to get real-time feedback on the ground and how has it affected operations in just the last few weeks?
1: Honestly, it's mostly been a confidence boost so far because for us, it was this giant question mark. Unlike a software company, it's not like we were able to launch very quickly and iterate based on customer feedback. We did have a pop-up location serving an early version of our menu for a while. We did have a prototype robot. But until we put this thing down and started serving people a couple of weeks ago, we had no idea what was going to happen because we hadn't connected the dots yet. And when people started raving about how good the food was, that was just such a confidence boost because we realized it was working. And all the more so yesterday, we served uh, 300 plus bowls yesterday, which is our record so far for a day. And when we realized that we could serve that many people in one day, that was a huge confidence boost. Although we did have a pretty big line form, and some people were waiting for quite a while. So uh, that's a good reminder for us that we do need to focus on keeping the right flow of people so that we're not leaving people waiting and then how much does a bowl cost on average depends on the bowl you can actually customize them for all kinds of prices we actually had someone order a very small bowl yesterday for 350 which is not typical and i think alex uh, here alex grubula has <laughs> configured very large bowls for 13 or 14 dollars. but a typical menu the sort of five flagship bowls range from 6.99 to 10.99
0: Do you guys have any concerns that due to supply chain constraints as it comes to food that you won't be able to maintain these price points?
1: Ultimately, the structural advantage we have is just that it costs less to build one of our locations and it costs much less to run it than it does a restaurant. So if food prices go up, we're going to have to also raise our prices. But we're still going to be the cheapest game in town by a pretty substantial margin just because we don't have costs that other restaurants do.
0: And I guess for you, because it's this automated process, there's no apology, right? So in our industry, typically the way it works is you hesitate to raise prices because you're worried about pushback from the customers and needing to explain that. But for you guys, because it's this automated process, when there are increases in supply chain costs, you pass that on to the customers. And I would assume it's the expectation. You
1: know, I do still think of us having a relationship with the customer. That's both because we do interact with customers directly. We stand in front of the robot right now and we talk to them right now as we're establishing ourselves. And we communicate over email. We have people who come back to us again and again or who came back to us again and again in our pop up location. So we very much do think of ourselves having a relationship with our customers the same way that a traditional restaurant does. It's just that there's not necessarily a human face to that relationship every time they come. And when we did get hit with big supply chain cost increases, during COVID at our pop-up location, we did have to raise prices, but we were also careful to communicate to customers that, hey, listen, our chicken prices just tripled. Unfortunately, we're going to have to pass that on to
0: you. Thank you for helping us stay in business. Talk to me about your marketing and messaging strategy, because this is something that launched recently, but it was a slow burn in the way that you guys methodically worked to market this, to promote it locally, nationally as both a tech company and a restaurant and you've talked about the cuisine itself specifically where did the marketing plan come from and what did it look like in practical execution thanks for
1: saying that our marketing looks this good because honestly it's been something that we've been learning on the fly part of what we've been very focused on is making sure that we have a coherent brand that communicates our values that we're playful and modern but we're also very focused on delivering this high quality experience for a reasonable price And so we've been working with a great team, a whole assortment of graphical designers, copywriters, et cetera, to make sure and doing a lot of that in-house as well, to make sure that we communicate that. As far as spreading the word, we had a whole plan. And then to be honest, most of it that's happened so far has just been that we landed one story in uh, Eater, uh, thanks to the help of our publicist. And after that, it kind of snowballed and we got all of this inbound media attention because what we're doing is so new. And so we've had to do very little proactive marketing so far. We still do have the plan on ice and we're going to pull it out soon, I expect, unless we keep getting slammed. But we barely publicized our event yesterday and we sold out in two hours. So if that keeps up, I'm not sure we're going to have to do very much marketing at all for the time being.
0: But let's look long term. So your value proposition revolves around getting a lot for a little, right? That you're offering this high quality meal at a very low price point. And what we've seen when we look back at the last, 200 or 2000 years within the restaurant industry is that when you benchmark price, right, when you say we are the highest value based on this price versus quality ratio, that it makes it really easy for competitors to come into the space. Do you guys worry about that long term? And how do you intend to cultivate a long term relationship with customers that it extends outside of price you know what you pay for relative to what you get we do think a big piece of what we're bringing to the table is actually
1: this quality to price ratio but unlike a restaurant that's carving out a specific niche we actually do have a defensible way of delivering a quality to price ratio that no one can even come close to matching which is our robotics and i do expect that once people see how well this model works they're going to start trying to follow in our footsteps But we have filed a number of patents on our approach, and we do have a two-year lead at this point on anyone else who's going to try. So that's really what we're starting using as our so-called moat to make sure that we're the ones who are able to do this the best. Now, to the degree that other people do pull it off, that's going to be a great thing for consumers because the faster people expand this kind of food service, the faster people can pay seven bucks for an amazing lunch or dinner and not have to spend an hour cooking or spend a big chunk of their paycheck. But of course, we're keen to expand as fast as we can and to also be a big player in the market. So we're glad that we've gotten this kind of a head start so we can be that kind of a big player.
0: Do you think of yourselves as restaurateurs?
1: I think we are. Yeah. That wasn't the first word I would use to describe ourselves. We think of ourselves as tech entrepreneurs and food people simultaneously. But I think that's a fair word to describe us as well. Yeah.
0: And so when you look back on your performance over the last two years, if you were to rate it, what are you most proud of? And what do you think other restaurateurs can learn from the great decisions that you've made? I think what we're most proud of is that
1: we've actually figured this out and that we picked this exceptionally hard problem that everyone correctly told us was going to be insanely hard to accomplish. Pulling all this off, the hardware, the software and the food, all with the very tight budget we've had. I mean, three mil is really not very much for a hardware company at all. And to pull it off in two years, we're very proud of that, the fact that we've actually launched this thing. And we're really the first company that's launched a full menu from a fully automated restaurant. And so, yeah, as of yesterday, we are patting ourselves on the back for that. We feel really mm-hmm. good about that. Now, as far as restaurateurs who, I mean, restaurateurs who are doing robotic restaurants, sure, yeah, I have a lot of tips to share, including making sure to focus on reliability, not getting too crazy with things, just focusing on keeping things simple keeping things cost effective because ultimately you're building something that needs to be cost effective. As far as traditional restaurateurs go, I'd hesitate to give any advice to someone who's running a traditional restaurant that's not a robotic restaurant because I'm just not sure which of our lessons generalize because I've never run any other kind of restaurant before.
0: And that leads to the next question, which is, do you think that robotics as it stands now, not to go fully automated, but do you think that where it is today is worth all restaurateurs looking at? I think there's certain
1: niches of the restaurant industry that would benefit from quite heavy application of robotics. And I think there's probably more that would benefit from some application of robotics. And what I mean by that is, let's start with the areas that I don't think warrant robotics at all, which are these sort of experience-heavy, very high-touch, very customized, full-service dining experiences, high-end restaurants. I don't expect many of these are going to be doing heavily robotic approaches for much of anything at all because that's not what that experience is about. It's this high-touch social experience, very wide range of preparation techniques used to give this great food experience to the customer, and that's just not where robotics is best tailored for right now. Now, when you get down to more limited-service type restaurants, some of them, I think, it does make sense to see a fully automated offering. The kind of thing we're doing, maybe other form factors of food, You can just get to a much higher quality to price ratio and a much cheaper build cost for the restaurant as well if you do go fully automated. But even partial automation, I think, has its place. And you see now some companies doing automated deep fryers and automated make lines. And plugging those into existing restaurants, again, can help alleviate some of the labor shortage that a lot of restaurants are experiencing and also bring a better price to the customer.
0: What mistakes have you made that you would hope that other restaurateurs, other founders would not make? I mean, a
3: whole list of technical things, mistakes I wish we hadn't made. We've solved them. You know, don't get me wrong, but it was a a lot of kicking yourself for, oh, man, why did I put that there? Now I have to figure out a way to get this thing routed past that thing. So a lot of technical challenges. I think, honestly, we made a few fundamentally correct choices along the way some of the people that we've hired, the people that we've brought onto the team. And with the right team, you can overcome any mistake, I think. So, I mean, I could get into all the technical things that we've, you know, the bolts we've misplaced and the cables that were too short and all those things. But I think we relied on some really experienced and talented people. Eric is amazing on the culinary side. So we leaned on those people to not have to put ourselves in situations where we would make really, really bad mistakes due to inexperience.
2: I guess for founders and especially hardware, non, I guess, like software founders, I would say it's always going to cost more and take longer than you think. We've raised multiple times along the way and we still are like, hmm, we should have taken that extra money that was offered to us at one point. Like that would have been great. Um, And then, you know, our timelines like slipped, not by much, you know, by like a month or two since like what our initial targets were, but It took a lot of energy over the last couple months to even hit like this grand opening date of yesterday. I mean, if we'd continued at a sustainable pace, a more sustainable pace, it would have probably been months from now still. So yeah, it just takes a long time and it's expensive. (laughs) Yeah, I think
1: inflating our timelines by about twenty five percent and doubling what we thought everything would cost would have helped us (laughs) (laughs) so we didn't have to be pinching pennies and working through the night so often
0: now you guys sound like restaurateurs. <laughs> <laughs> that is the story for all of us. It costs and It takes twice as long. Yeah. We
1: talked to some of our restaurant industry mentors over the last few weeks. Uh, and I mean, especially maybe two weeks ago when we were still putting things together, nothing was quite working right yet. And we were all working 80 or 100 hour weeks. We were all stressed out. We were feeling pretty bad. And I think a number of us, including myself and uh, Chef Eric, had conversations with mentors. And what people told us is pretty much, you're opening a restaurant. It's going to be like this. This is normal. (laughs) Right. This is your best case scenario.
0: Enjoy. Yeah, Yeah, literally. (laughs) Do you guys have a clearly defined vision for what success looks like for the company?
1: We think that we have a very scalable model. And so we'd like to grow very large indeed, because we can mass produce these we can make them much more like a car company would make cars than how a restaurant company builds restaurants. And because of the economics that we can do with each location, we expect that we're going to be able to finance more locations pretty quickly. And so we're looking to expand to really quite a lot of locations around the country quite quickly and start bringing in new menus that we can serve to customers and becoming a standby choice for lunch and dinner and even for overnight meals because we can serve 24-7 for a whole lot of Americans and maybe even people outside the country. So really what we're trying to do is totally change the face of limited service, convenience-oriented, high-quality food so that it becomes affordable to everyone.
0: What are your hopes for 2023?
1: I think we're going to build one or two more of these and deploy them to some new locations and see
0: how things go once we're running more than one. The restaurant industry is filled with these unspoken rules and traditions of how things should be done how would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? Alex, if you don't mind, I might take a stab at it.
3: Please. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of weight placed on the steps that happen before the plate. So how things are cooked, the exact techniques used, and all the pieces that come before that final product. And I think that's important, but it's also limiting. I think that there are certain areas, especially in the way that we cook and finish foods where the perception of quality is so dependent on the process used that we are missing other opportunities to prepare food in a way that is really, really good and delivers high quality, but maybe isn't a technique that you would see in a in the back of a Michelin star restaurant or a fine dining restaurant. There are ways to produce food that's really high quality that some of those techniques get a bad rap. I mean, they're totally food safe and Really effective. And I think that opening up to those as uh, part of your process could be really valuable.
0: That's the team from Mesley. For more on Mesley, visit Mesley.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.